All right. <clears throat> Good morning. Um, we, uh, uh, this should be interesting because I really don't have much of a sermon prepared. I, I really didn't think we'd be here today. So um, I, just, I just didn't do it. So I, I'm kind of, kind of um, just kidding. Just kidding. <clears throat> um, this is like the fourth or fifth now. Um, is that music? Oh, cool. Um, we're, doing, we're doing that now. The, uh, uh, this is like the fourth or fifth end of the world. I've made it through. I don't know about the rest of you. Um, I survived Y2K. You all remember that one? And uh, 2012, the whole Mayan calendar running dry or whatever it was doing and uh, the blood moon stuff. It's, it's been intriguing to me because obviously a, a fundamental part of the Christian faith is the belief in the day of the Lord that there is going to become, there will eventually be this last trumpet. And, uh, and so I don't ever want to mock or, or be irreverent at all about that truth. That is, that is a big part of the, of the hope of the faith is that. And yet when, when someone uses the day of the Lord or rapture or whatever is kind of clickbait for their YouTube site, it's just, it's just hard for me to take that very seriously. And so I, I really struggle with that. I, I, I imagine some of you do as well. Um, but and we're still here for now anyway, and uh, that could change at any time. So I hope everyone's ready. So um, as we jump into the book of Judges, uh, we're, we're, this, is, this is a challenging book. The, the book of Judges is, is going to be a, 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 not an easy book to go through. Um, it's not an easy book to teach. It's an even harder book to preach, which I'll talk about in a second, um, This poses some special um, questions for us. So first of all, you may have wondered, like I did for many years, why the book is called Judges. Um, that doesn't, when I think of a judge, I, I think of like this. I mean, I, I think of, you know, nine people in, in, in black roads making decisions for all the rest of us. That's, that's what I, and I don't see any of them, none of them have the look of someone who's like about to take a, a donkey's jawbone and slay a thousand people or sneak up on somebody and stab them in the gut. Like that doesn't, none of them have that look to them, and at least they don't seem to to me. And so I, it seems odd to me that this book is called Judges and always has. So as, as I've done some research, the word there, the Hebrew word there, and, and Hebrew is a tough, tough language. Um, Paul is studying the, the, uh, the language, Hebrew, right now in seminary, and, uh, and it is apparently really hard. And so uh, um, it's, it's a real challenge. I'm, I'm glad he is because I never had to study. The more I hear about Paul's experience, the glad, more glad I am that my, my degree did not require uh, the, to study Hebrew. It's, it's really tough. So here's some of the examples of some things that are tough about it. One of them we find here is that they don't have a lot of words. And so what you're left with is any one word can mean a lot of different things. And so you're really, you're, we're going to run into this a few times in this book. This is an example. This word, um, shafat, yeah, um, can mean to govern. Um, one form of governing is judging, and that's a big part of governing at times, making judgment calls. But, but this is also means to get. So we could have, if someone, you know, when they translated to English for the first time six, seven hundred years ago, if they had decided to call this book the Governors, which seems weird now, but that's what we would call it now. But instead, it's called the Judges. Um, and so we're going to have a couple of chapters of introduction, and then we're going to jump into basically the stories of individual people who are called the judges, and we learn more or less about them um, as we go. So today, we're kind of setting ourselves up for, um, for that introduction. Um, it, another thing is, this is kind of a Jewish shorthand history. So um, history is hard enough to write, and without writing tons and tons of detail, you always have to decide how much to tell and how much not to tell. 
Um, on top of that, this is a Jewish history, which is very different from, say, an American history. We don't write the way, we don't think the way, we have a totally different culture um, than they, even than they do now, much less than they did 2,000 years ago at the time of Christ, much less than they did 3,500 years ago at the time of the judges. And so this is, this is a far removed culture from ours, which makes it a challenge. We're going we're gonna to read some things that you just, you're going to scratch your head over. I mean, and, and by the way, I hope you do. I hope you get your Bible and read through Judges. Um, this will be a great week to read through Judges chapter 1 and 2 in preparation for next week. I really encourage you to do so. And because I'm going to be moving, we've, we've got like eight or nine weeks to cover the book of Judges, which is way too long to try to do that, um, which is okay. We're going to cover what we can. But in that time, if you read through a chapter and you go, wow, this is something I would love to learn about or love to understand or love for it to be mentioned, send me an email and tell me that. And, and I can work that into some of the sermons that we're doing to answer that because I'm going to be having to skip through some stuff and move quickly. But um, So there's this shorthand history. So even by Jewish standards, this is a shorthand history. So for example, we see at the beginning of the very beginning of the book, we see this weird, um, this weird uh, tendency of the author of Judges to refer to tribes um, by people. And so, for example, at the beginning, you, you, if you're reading through, you see, so Joshua's died. Again, we'll talk more about this next week, but Joshua has died. And, and so they're looking for some leadership, and they go to God, who's going to lead us. And probably they cast lots or, or drew from the, the priestly robes. And, and, the, and the lot they ended up falling on was the tribe of Judah. Well, you get this strange little conversation at the beginning of the book of Judges, where it has Judah having a conversation with Simeon which is one of the other brothers. What's strange about that is that both Judah and Simeon are long dead. Um, neither Judah nor Simeon is here. They're not here for this conversation. This is the author's shorthand way of saying probably the leaders of the tribe of Judah got together with the leaders of the tribe of Simeon, and they had some meetings, and they prayed, and they discussed, and they decided that Simeon was going to come alongside Judah to be kind of the spearhead of the battle against the Canaanites, which is what the book of Judges is really about. Now, um, so that's strange. When you read it and you're reading, oh, Judah and Simeon talk to each other. Well, no, not really. They're dead. This is, this is, they, they represent the whole tribe, though, of people. So as you're, as you're looking through this, studying that, recognize there's stuff like that. Um, how about this? Then you get these repeated passages. So it's weird in that it's a history, and it'll say this happened. But then a few, a few verses later, it will tell you again the same thing happened. And if you're just reading it straight through, it feels like, oh, I guess that happened again. No, this is a, this is a reference to the first time. It's just a going back through it for some reason that doesn't make necessarily sense to us here in the 21st century in the West. So here's an example of that. In Judges 1.10, And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and uh, Abimon and Talmaj. You remember them, right? No, you don't. I, I promise. You didn't, you, you've probably never studied them, and, and there'd be no real good reason for you to have done so. But, the, but so Judah goes against the Canaanites, defeats them in Hebron, and defeats these three guys by, by name. I'll talk about why in a second. But then look down in verse 20, and it says, Caleb took Hebron and drove out the three sons of Anak. Well, it's 10 verses later, but Caleb, who was the leader of the tribe of Judah at the time, goes and defeats Hebron, which we just read about in verse 10, that the people of Judah did, and they conquered the three sons of Anak. Oh, now you know who those three people are. 
these, these three guys, I'm not going to try to say their names again, those are the three sons of Anak. So there you go. That kind of stuff happens all through this book, where there's a, a, a reference back to something that's already happened, and so the chronology becomes tough. It can be confusing at times. Things overlap. They touch on each other, that kind of stuff. So that's going to happen. Now, you may be asking yourself, who are the sons of Anak? That's the kind of thing that you can then begin to study from the book of Judges. One little phrase like that, and now you're off on a cross-reference um, extravaganza through the whole Bible, jumping from jumping and jumping and jumping. So, for example, um, Numbers 13.31, which is this is when the people of Israel are supposed to be going in and conquering the promised lands. So this is 40-plus years before this. And they come back, and 10 of them give this report. Now, now, 1331, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Well, what, what is this? So now you have the sons of Anak being talked about 40 years before. So, so apparently they were around then, 40 plus years before, and they were scary dudes. And then the Bible, this passage, these guys connect it to the Nephilim. Well, who are... Who is that? Well, so this is, by the way, the Nephilim are, I'm just going to warn you. Um, the Nephilim are one of those topics that you can get off on in the Bible and that, 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 that you then find yourself slowly transitioning from the Bible because the Bible says almost nothing about them. And you slowly transition over to the wisdom of YouTube. Um, and, and you find yourself on a really weird ground very, very quickly. Um, so when you get that clickbait on your Facebook that shows somebody digging up a giant body, you know, a giant skeleton in the ground, um, by the way, it's, it's, it's photoshopped. It's, it just is. But the, the, and you want to, oh, let's study about this giant skeleton that's been found. Like, and then you find yourself people kind of picking and choosing verses of scriptures all over the Bible and they're, oh, well, and, and, and they're trying to make something connect. So here's, we, the truth is we don't know. We don't know what's going on here. The Nephilim are these, the people referenced way back in Genesis who were the sons of God, um, kind of hooking up with the daughters of men. And we don't know who either of those populations necessarily were. And they had offspring, and the offspring are called the Nephilim, all of whom should have died in the flood. And so how are they here in Canaan is kind of weird. It could just be as simple as Anak and Nephilim both became words for big people. Um, that people just who were big. It's like if we go like, oh my gosh, I met Shaquille O'Neal, and he's a giant. That's all that it means. He was, he was enormous. It could just mean that, that the people of Israel are going like, these were like the sons of Anak, meaning Shaq. That's what they mean. So who knows? It could easily be something just as simple as that. Or there could be some historical reference that we've lost. But you see how real quickly we could, I could find myself teaching a sermon for 35 minutes about something that has absolutely nothing to do with the book of Judges and doesn't have a whole lot of application. But if that's interesting to you, Cool, study that. Let me just give you the, the, the point of concern. Stay with Scripture. Try, try to stay away from YouTube um, when it comes to Bible study. Just, just be careful about that. Um, so these people, all tall people, um, all kinds of cool stuff that you can study. But you can quickly, the rabbit trails and the red herrings can drag you away from some of the main themes and purposes about the book of Judges, for example. That can happen with Scripture at any time. Um, so... Um, another one, these, these are places, they're going to they're be places named and people named that we have no idea who the people are, and we, and we have no idea even where the places are. 
They're going to list places, the, the book of Judges is going to list numerous places that are in the nation of Israel that no one knows where, the, where they are in the nation of Israel. That these were names for short periods of time or for, a short, or for a small group of people, and we have totally lost them. You cannot go to Israel today and find that city. No one has any idea where it is. Now, some of them we do know, but even some of the really important ones, like Gilgal that we're going to get to, we're really not sure where that is even. There's debate on where that, where that is. So, again, that's part of what makes this tough to study, tough to teach, and even harder to preach. So, um, here's another one. When you're reading Scripture, when you're reading through the Bible, here's what you've got. One of the things you've got to wrestle through is the difference between description and prescription. Okay, so here's what that that means. So, a lot of things in the Bible are just there in the Bible because they happened. Um, In fact... The book of Judges is clearly intended to be a historical, as I said, a historical book. The writer intends for you to, like, you can visit these places. There's a couple of places where the writer says, that's why to this day this is the case. Now, intriguingly, in at least one of those cases, by the time we read it, actually by the time of King David, what that writer says isn't true anymore. But when they wrote this, this was still true. You could still go to Jerusalem and see the Jebusites in charge. Again, King David's going to change that for everybody, but... But at the time this was written, you could do that. They intend for it to be something you can check on. You don't believe me? Go look, the writer is essentially saying. So those are description. We're going to see a description. If you read through the book of Judges, you're going to see some things described that are horrific. There are things in the book of Judges that are, they are awful things. Um, and they're just, they're just put in there. Some people seem to be under the false impression that if something is in the Bible, it therefore has God's stamp of approval on it. That is, could not be further from the truth. There's all kinds of stuff in the Bible that God not only disapproves of, but punishes and, and goes after and, and sends his people to conquer and all that kind of stuff. So don't, don't be caught up in that idea. Just because you read something doesn't mean it's okay, especially in the book of Judges. In fact, most things in the book of Judges are not to be emulated. They're descriptions of things that happened. Now, some things... As we dig through, a lot of preaching, not just teaching, but preaching is about application. So you can see why Judges is a hard book to preach through. I'm not trying to make it sound like my life is hard here, by the way. That's, this is great stuff. But, but it's hard to go, okay, so, so uh, you know, you got a judge who, who lies and sneaks a dagger into a bad guy's throne room and then stabs him in the gut and then runs and hides. And so, you know, at the altar call, obviously, I need to have everybody come up and, like, what? I mean, what, respond to that in, I have no idea. Like, I don't, what's the, what's, the, what's the application of that for us? What we are going to look at are some themes today that each of these different stories feeds into. And each of these themes becomes things that we can apply to our lives, that we can look at. But it's not always easy. In the New Testament, when you're teaching through like a, one of Paul's letters, one of the epistles, Paul's letters like to one of the churches, there, okay, so that's not so hard to do the application. You read it and you go, oh, well, yeah, I see what I need to do there. So if we, if we teach about marriage and its sanctity and how sacred it is and how it's a covenant between you and another person before God and before man, and you can say, oh, you know what? I have an inappropriate relationship going on with another woman other than my wife. I need to change that. Like, I need to confess that sin, and I need to change that in my life, and I need to cut off that relationship, and I need to get help. And I, like, that's pretty clear. The application is not hard to spot. If you come to a passage that says, um, hey, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't inspire anger in your children. 
And you go, oh, I'm one of those dads who kind of, I come down hard on my kids and I'm, I'm mean and I'm short-tempered and I pick on them and I kind of haze them. I had a tough childhood. They should have a tough childhood. And you listen to that, you should go, oh, wow, I need to, I need to change. I need to confess my sin. I need to learn to be a gentle father and, and a father who in my strength is also clearly loving and accepting like, oh, that's not hard. It's right there. The application is clearly written there. Let no unclean speech come out of your mouth. Okay. Well, that's not hard to teach the application. Samson tied a bunch of foxes' tails together and set the, set the wheat fields on fire. I'm not really sure what to tell you to do with that. It's not as easy, right? So maybe we should somehow figuratively tie the foxes in our lives. I don't know. Anyway, so... That's, that's, that's a, one of the challenges. So hopefully as we dig through this, the Spirit will speak to you as you study as well on your own. Um, all right, so um, moving on down. So the Hebrew Scriptures. Here's why we are going to study the book of Judges, and here's some of the themes we're looking for. But one of the main reasons I want us to study this is because of the state of our culture today and its similarities to the state of the culture of Israel throughout the Judges. So there's a phrase that shows up twice in the book of Judges that really kind of identifies this era of the Hebrew people. It, it's it's um, found in 17.6 and 21.6. Everyone tweeted what was right in his own eyes. So that's what it says. See right there. Everyone tweeted. This is why you bring your own Bibles right here. That's why you look. Um, no, not tweeted, but did what was right in his own eyes. But we are in a culture now where people seem to have no, most people seem to feel no sense of divine, sovereign judgment over what they do and what they say. <laughs> there is not a God in heaven, in their opinion, who sits on a throne and to whom they will answer for every deed and every word. But that is what we believe is true and what the Bible teaches. And so we are in a similar culture. We feel like we can do it our way. Every time I hear that song, I think it's the saddest. By the way, that old Sinatra, Sinatra, right? See, I, I get cultural things wrong so often, I now know to ask. Um, but it's such a heartbreaking song to hear a man, by the way, who has now, who is dead and who now understands the ramifications of deciding, no matter what anyone says, I did it my way. And I'm, I'm betting that didn't work out so well in the end. So for us, do we, do we really think that this is our call? I get to do it my way? Or do we need to be doing it God's way? And that's a, that's a question that we need to be asking ourselves. He as sovereign God, do I get to do what's right in my own eyes? Because generally speaking, that's foolish. What's right in our own eyes is often not right at all. But that's where the people of Israel were. They had no leadership. They had no guidance so we're going to look at some of these themes today and get these on the table, and then we'll come back to them across the weeks that we study the book of Judges. So one, one thing that we see throughout the book of Judges is a cycle. This cycle is very clear. Like you, if you've read Judges, you know this cycle. Here's how it goes. The people of Israel ignore God. They walk away from God. They start serving Baal and Asherah, and we'll talk more about them. Um, they, they are not nice people. The, gods, the god Baal and the goddess Asherah there's nothing, there's nothing nice about, there's nothing sweet about these gods. And we're going to talk a little bit about it as much as we can in a mixed company. Um, I will be hinting at a number of different things as, I, as we talk about them because they are that evil and crass. Um, and to worship them was that awful. And so the people of Israel would go to start worshiping the God of the Canaanites and the people who were surrounded by. 
And then God would allow or even send one of the nations nearby them to conquer them, put them underfoot, and enslave them. This is, this is huge. God would do that. He would send, God is willing, all through the book of Judges, God is willing to bring pain and discomfort into his people's lives in order to get them to look back to him. If you're comfortable with that, I worry about you. There's nothing cool about that. And yet, it is God's, one of God's way of dealing with us as free people is that he will put into our lives the kind of pain and suffering that we require in order to repent. Because we don't tend to do that too well when we're happy. I will tell you, just as a therapist, there's not a whole lot of people who come to counseling. Change happens when we are hurting. There's not a lot of people who come to counseling, shell out the money, and go, really, I'm good. I just thought I'd come by and say hi. No, I'm happy. Even when there is all kinds of awful things in their lives. Even when they're involved in an affair, they don't schedule a counseling appointment then. They schedule it when they get caught. When they're feeling the pain of it is when they come in. Even when they're caught up in an addiction, that's not when they schedule to come in to talk to the counselor. It's when they get busted in their addiction. That's when they suddenly they show up. Because they should be there before then. But it's not until they feel the pain that they think, I probably ought to change. It's a, it's a bad, my dad used to say in reference to me, that experience is a harsh mistress, meaning schoolmaster, meaning someone who teaches, harsh teacher, but some fools will learn with no other. So again, he was talking to me at the time. Um, <clears throat> I had a nasty habit of learning things the hard way. Here's something, um, the writer C.S. Lewis, who um, wrote Screwtape Letters, Screwtape Letters is the most impactful book in my life outside of the Bible, um, because it, it nails me so constantly as I read it. It's, it's, a, le- it's a, a series of letters from one demon named Screwtape to another demon named Wormwood. So you got to remember that this is writing of a demon. So when he says the enemy, he means God. Um, when he talks about um, our father, he's talking about Satan. Okay, so just make sure you twist your brain a little bit as you hear this. But here's, here's the writer, here's the demon Screwtape talking to Wormwood. Humans are amphibians, half spirit and half animal. The enemy's determination to produce such a revolting hybrid was one of the things that determined our father to withdraw his support from him. All right, because that's how that happened. Satan, Satan decided to withdraw his support from God. Anyway, as the spirits, they belong to an eternal world, but as animals, they inhabit time. This means that while their spirit can be directed to an eternal object, their bodies, passions, and imaginations are in continual change. For us to be in time means to change. Their nearest approach to constancy, therefore, is undulation. Undulation looks like this, up and down and up and down and up and down. Their repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back. A series of troughs and peaks. If you had watched your patient carefully, you would have seen this undulation in every department of his life. His interest in his work, his affection for his friends, his physical appetites, they all go up. And down. As long as he lives on earth, periods of emotional and bodily richness and liveliness will alternate with periods of numbness and poverty. Anybody ever experienced that? Yes, you have. If you're a human, there are times when you've been up, and here's what you know for sure about if you're really, really high, is that you will at some point in the future be low. 
And if you're low, you can know at some point in the future you will be high. This is when I gave up after about two years of doing counseling with people. I gave up on asking people what their goals for therapy were. Uh, for the counselors in the room, you, because all of them have the same goal for therapy. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody. I just want to be happy. Like, well, good news, you will be. And then you won't. And then you will. And then you won't. And then you will, but then you won't. <laughs> That's what it means to be human. It's why it's so hard to st even study things like antidepressants, right? Because if you take someone who's super, super depressed and you give them some pills in three or four weeks, they're feeling better. What's impossible to know is how much better would they be feeling if they hadn't had the pills? Because you can't stay down here forever. Eventually you feel better. And so it's so hard to study these things because we as humans, we do this. Don't beat yourself up or your spouse up about the fact that you do this because you do this. It's part of, again, it's part of the human experience to be up and then to be down and then to be up and then to be down. We see this cycle played out in the Hebrews, the lives of the Hebrews in the book of Judges as they are up and they're all excited and we're never going to forsake God and we're going to conquer our enemies and they do and then they stop. And then they decide, you know what, I think we'll follow the Asherahs and the Baals. And God sends an enemy into their life. And they get smacked, and, and they get depressed, and they get discouraged. And finally, they call out to God, and God says, well, it's about time. And he sends a judge, and the judge comes in and leads the people to conquer their enemies. And they live for some freedom, and they live for a while, and they have a few decades, and the judge dies, and, then the, and that cycle repeats itself. Certainly one of the applications of the book of Judges to us as a whole is that tendency for us to live that out. Another way to, to think about this in regards to, say, for example, the addiction cycles. Um, in the addiction cycles, what we, when we help people learn, any, any alcoholics in the room know that this is how this plays out. Anyone with any addiction in the room who's worked on it knows. This is why in AA, they don't ever stop calling themselves alcoholics. They may say recovering alcoholic, because they know that they're on a cycle. And so here's the, here's the acting out. Pick whatever it is, pornography or anger or, or you, I mean, a, a drugs or whatever. whatever. So the, the cycle happens like this. You dink, dink, you hit that. This is acting out. Dink, dink, dink. And there's all guilt and tension and, and recriminate, all the different things that, that play out in this. And you, you act out and you act out and you act out. Well, hopefully what happens is as you finally learn to grow up and begin to deal with this and you, and you ask the Spirit to sanctify you and you get the help you need, what happens is this circle begins to expand. And you go, okay, I, I, I acted out, but I'm, I'm now growing and I can deal with the guilt and I can avoid the temptations and I can avoid the tension and I can make no provision for the flesh and I can get accountability. And this extends way, 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 way out. But if you're an addict, you know it doesn't, it doesn't ever become a perfectly straight line while we're in the flesh. It, it's just the curve becomes, and it, and it will slowly begin to curve. And hopefully you get help to kind of bounce it back down and, you, and, you, and so it goes all the way back around. The goal is that this spreads out so much. The goal of an addict is that this spreads out so much that you die of old age before it gets around again. That's the goal. But we are frail creatures of dust. We are, we are addicts. We're addicted to sugar and caffeine and nicotine and every other little thing we can to make our flesh feel better. That's part of who we are. And so we, we live this out. So how do we live out in freedom in the midst of this, in these cycles that we deal with, like the people of Israel, returning to God the earliest possible in the cycle, as quickly as possible in the undulation, reverting back and looking to God is, is going to be our solution, just like the people of Israel. I'm also desperate for us to have an awakening in our country. Our nation, our culture, our church goes through cycles like this. But our nation is in a pretty dark place right now. At least I think so. 
And I think it's in need of an awakening. We've had awakenings before. I'm reading a book um, about D.L. Moody right now, who was a great evangelist and teacher um, in the mid-1800s. And I don't know about you, but anytime I listen to or read a book about the great um, kind of Christian fathers and mothers from the last few centuries, I always just feel like a big wimp. Anybody else have that? Like you, you read about the great missionaries of the past or the great, and you're like, Wow, I mean, so D.L. Moody, with no education, by the way, nothing, um, essentially started schools, led revivals, founded seminaries all over the world, gave away millions of dollars. That was back when millions meant something in the 1850s, right? Gave away millions of dollars um, that he would raise unintentionally by publishing something like a songbook, and it would become the greatest selling thing in the history of mankind at that time, except for the Bible. And since he didn't accept any money um, for preaching, um, and teaching as he traveled around. It was, just, it was just amazing to read about this guy. There have been a number of great awakenings. We had the first one in the 1730s. Um, that's where you get George Whitfield, if you've ever heard of him. The second one in the late 1700s. That's where abolition and women's rights and that kind of stuff were connected to that. Don't, by the way, don't buy into the idea that abolition or civil liberties or that kind of things were mainly the, the, were the, the, the realm of the humanists. That is not the case. Those were connected to the second great awakening in the United States. They were a Christian move, part of the Christian movement of repentance and revival that swept across our country. Um, the late 1850s, D.L. Moody, that's where we get the YMCA, came from him um, and that group. The fourth one was a Welsh one that traveled around the world. Um, the fifth one was in the 1960s and 70s. You guys remember the Jesus movement um, where we saw massive numbers of people being converted. Isn't it interesting how these overlap with really, really dark times in a culture because that's how it works the sixth one is going on now in asia um, according to um, jim dennison uh, and it's going on in asia where they're seeing hundreds of thousands of converts and but we're missing it in the west so part of why i want to teach you the book of judges is because i am prayerful that god will provide a new awakening for our culture that god will bring us as a nation back to himself um, so we'll talk more about that getting there that passage um, from, from Second Chronicles, it certainly applies in the book of Judges um, as it did um, when God wrote it that when he brings calamity onto his people, he then says, and if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. I hope that applies to us as the church today. <clears throat> so in addition to this cyclical nature, and maybe as even as a part of it, one of the themes of Judges is that no one listens to God. You get almost no communication back and forth between God and man in the book of Judges. Even the judges, for the most part, do what is right in their own eyes. Um, God, God uses them. Um, he wields them at times, despite their character flaws. Um, if you're a big fan of Samson, prepare to be disappointed. Um, man, there is just not much admiral about Samson. Um, I grew up with this idea of he was kind of the Clark Kent Superman of the Bible and uh, kind, of the, kind of the, you know, truth, justice, and the American way. And it turns out he's pretty much just a big whiny teenager um, and never outgrows that. So you'll be just prepared. If you, if you grew up on the flannel graph of Samson, I'm going to break your heart later. Um, so no one listens to God. And part of this is about the fact that people don't seem to take their sin very seriously. Now, again, that sounds familiar. Uh, people don't seem to take their sin very seriously. Yes, in that cycle of addiction, guilt and self-recrimination is not valuable. Um, God, what God tells 
Joshua, I've always thought is very valuable. When you mess up, when things fall apart, God tells Joshua, get up. Get up off your face. Joshua's kind of whining about, oh, and God's like, get up. There's sin in the camp. Deal with the sin. Make no provision for the flesh. Again, you've heard me say many times, it's, it's why my phone will not, accept, will not connect to the internet. I don't want that provision for the flesh in my life. So how do you do that? You get up, but, but at the same time, part of that is a response to the recognition of the truth that our sin is very, very destructive to ourselves, to each other, and very offensive to a holy God. People really do think, I was talking with somebody this week, people really do think that their sin does not impact other people. And, and that is, could not be, I mean, it's a huge lie. There's no such thing as personal sin. Yes, it is destructive to us, sometimes destructive to our bodies. We sin against each other. But, you know, there are consequences that, that far outstrip just us. Um, so do we understand that? Do we recognize that our sin um, that we were born with started us off lost and that we need to be found? God is calling us out of the wilderness into his life and his light and into the obedience following with him. And then the last one I want to comment is on the things that God tells us to do. Um, there's an interesting way that we live this out, that we see this in the book of Judges. Um, John Redfern was talking about it this week. We, we try to talk every week about the sermon and the series. And, and John pointed out one of the themes in the book of Judges is this kind of we mentality. There's something that God has called us to. There are some things that God has called us to. So, for example, community callings. Um, the people of Israel were called to wipe out the people who lived in and drive out the people who lived in Canaan, in the promised land. And we see the consequences of them failing to do so. Again, we're going to see it in vivid color in chapters 1 and 2 and every other chapter of the book of Judges. Is their failure to do the, the calling that God had on all of them as a people is so destructive to them. So how about us? There's, there's an application for us as a group. What are some of the things that God has called us to? Our local body and the capital C church. So what are some things that God has called us to? What's that? Okay, to love one another. That's how the God, people will know we are his disciples. What else? Yeah. Say follow Jesus? Absolutely. That is something that we are called to do, is to follow Jesus. Good. What else? Okay, make disciples. Go, make disciples. Baptize and teach. Good. The Great Commission. Is that? Okay, grieve together. There are times when we need to grieve together. Times when we need to celebrate together. That's part of why there is a body from 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. That's why there's all of us. What else? Okay, love together. Excellent. That's exactly right. To love each other and to love our neighbor as ourselves, right? Absolutely. Okay. Care for widows and orphans in their need. That's, that's, that's what pure and undefiled religion is, according to the book of James. That's one of the things we're supposed to be doing. Absolutely. Now, there's a bunch. We could come up with a lot of them. Um, so how do we do that? How do we accomplish, as a group... Being salt and light, the city on a hill. How do we accomplish worshiping in spirit and in truth? 
How do we, as, as, as a local body, God has called us in many different ways, clearly, to raise up a new generation of Christian leaders um, in our culture and in our community. That's why one in every three of us who's here on Sunday morning is under the age of 18. That, that we are here to help raise up a new generation. It's why we don't hire our, we, a little bit, but why we don't hire a bunch of people on Sunday morning to try to take care of our kids for us. Because we want you, as you're taking care of those third graders, you are learning how to teach Scripture to children so that you can teach it to your own children and your own grandchildren. That we want, we, that's our job as, as believers, that we are being trained to live that out week after week. That's part of what we're called to. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something in, in, to, to help kind of move us towards the, the wrap up here. So I'm going to get Paul to come help me. I did this differently first service, but Paul said he's, they're do, they do it diff, he's done it differently before. So if it goes badly, it's all on Paul. So anyway, all his bad. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I, um, uh, everybody, everybody, real quick, you, you, like this, is, this would be one. One is this. Okay, good. Okay, good. Two, two was, is this. Okay, good. Okay, stop. Three is, and we'll go with, we'll go, okay, so three is this. Okay, good. Okay, and then four is golf clap. Good. Okay, excellent. Good, good, good. So you're going to, you're going to do the one that, that I or Paul, so if I'm holding up a one, that means everybody who, if I'm like this, you're doing it like if you're in front of my finger. You follow the concept here? Okay, so, so like you don't know yet. So you guys would be doing it, but you wouldn't. Not yet. Not until, not until the finger of power passes in front of you. That's when you would start. Okay, good. And then, and then as I move across the stage and try not to die in the, in the holes across the stage, then that's, that's what people do. And then behind me, Paul will come and he'll show a number. Okay? And then we reverse it when we come back to, to drop off a number. Okay? So we'll try to do some hand signs to help you see that. Everybody follow the concept. So one, one was this. Two is this, three is this, four is this. Okay, good? Okay, good. So we're going to make a lesson out of this. Okay, you ready? Mostly I just like doing this, and so I have an excuse. I'm always looking for an excuse. Are you ready? Everybody ready? Okay, good. And keep doing it after you start doing it. Pretty cool, huh? It worked. It worked. Pretty great. 
That's called a group precipitation activity. Um, I saw Rich Mullins do that when I was 19 at a, at a concert. I was like, I'm going to do that every chance I could get my excuse to do it. Um, okay, so it's meant to teach a lesson, believe it or not. Um, it's meant to teach the, a lesson here I want to talk about. How do all of us accomplish something? How do all of us create a, a, a rainstorm like that? The only way is by each of us doing our part. You see how that works? If you have enough people who, go, who sit there with their hands in their pockets like, I'm not going to look stupid doing that. This is lame. Then it is lame. I mean, it goes badly if you have people who are trying to do it sometimes with like middle school kids and they'll be like, I'm not going to. And then it just goes terrible. It only works if everyone's a part of it. So there's an each and all aspect to this community calling. If Caleb goes and fights, that's great. But what happens if Caleb's sons and his family and his tribe and the, the other tribes don't fight? Then the people don't, get, don't, don't accomplish what God has called all of them to do. And we actually see that happen, by the way. We see Caleb and his family do their job. But the problem is not everyone else does their job and it falls apart. So this is how this plays out. That we have a jobs in particular each and all. Because if each of us will follow through with what God is calling us all to do, that's when great things begin to be accomplished. So as we're looking through the book of Judges, the community call, and what is our role? What is your role in going, making disciples, teaching, baptizing? That is not a passage for professional paid Christians only. It is for all believers if you can't find that in your life, then you're not being a part of the community calling. And if you want to be, we'd love to help you. If you say, I, honestly, I'm not very good at loving my fellow believers. Maybe I'm not good at loving people and fellow believers who are a different race than I am, or different ethnicity than I am, or different color than I am, or different age than I am, or different sex and I am. If, if that's you, you go, I'm not good at loving my brothers and sisters if they're different like that. Then you're not living out the community calling with the rest of us. And, all, and by the way, none of us are perfectly. Remember, this is not like, oh, see, you're not. God calls us to perfection because he is perfect and he works this stuff out in our lives. As we memorize in Philippians 2, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is really him who's at work in our lives. To work and will according to his Good pleasure, great purposes, whatever translation you have. So the prayer today is as we look through Judges, that you're looking at your own life in regards to these applications. The community calling. Where am I in this cycle and how do I need to change it and where do I need to gain new victory in these cycles and this undulation? And am I being sincere with myself about am I lost? Do I really not know Jesus at all? And being a church member does not make you know Jesus. Being attending of a church doesn't mean a personal faith where you have talked to God personally about putting your faith in him forever. Or are you at least even acting like you're lost, like you're wandering out there, living out sin as if you're not a believer? These three areas we're going to run into over and over again in this book. Let us not be silent in our, in our connection to God. Let us be in prayer, talking and listening, which was one of my main lessons on my um, sabbatical that you guys sent me on. Let's remember to talk and listen in regards to God to avoid some of the things that we see in this book. So let's pray. 
Let the Spirit lead you as the Spirit sees fit. Father, we are so grateful for what you are doing and what you continue to do in our midst. You're faithful when we are not. Um, we followed this law of undulation, these cycles, and, and you have rescued us time and time and time again. Sometimes, Lord, it's through pain that you've put in our lives or allowed in our lives that you've used that to pull us back and draw us back to you. Um, Lord, my prayer is that more and more often as believers, we wouldn't need that in order to recognize our need to repent and return to you. Um, and remembrance and rest is our salvation, Lord, and we, we find that salvation in your son and the freedom that only he can give us. Lord, I pray that you would lead us and guide us in supernatural ways. Um, we, we also want to lift up, um, just come to my mind, um, Carol Ann Adams, who's in the hospital and they're not sure what's going on. And I do pray, Lord, that you would give uh, insight to them and the doctors and, and, Lord, you would heal her and make her well. Um, Lord, you know all things that's going on in our lives and we trust in you. And I know there are plenty of other people here who are struggling in different ways in their marriages, in their health, in their family, in their financial situations, all of it, Lord. And I pray that you would speak loudly into each of those. Turn our hearts to you in new and powerful ways, we ask in your son's magnificent name. Amen.